Welcome to Sober Solutions. We are a weekly recovery podcast, not affiliated with any particular 12-step or recovery program. However, you may hear us mention them. My name is Jason, and I'm an alcoholic and addict. My name is Chris, and I'm an alcoholic and addict. My name is Ben, I'm an alcoholic and addict. And welcome back to Sober Solutions Podcast. It is episode 22. And tonight's topic is the pause. And we have a very special guest tonight, Quint S. Quint has been instrumental in my personal and professional development. I really credit Quint with helping me understand and really know what sobriety is all about. Quint is in his 39th year of sobriety, and I really hope that you enjoy his story tonight and the conversation that we have. So welcome, Quint. We're very excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Appreciate it. Excellent. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. Um, you know, I drank, I quit, now I live happily ever after. Isn't that, um, you know, it's funny. The first time I told my story, the first year of sobriety, you had where I got sober, you had to wait a year. And then you could tell your story. Of course, I was there the first week wanting to know how do you get up front? And they told me I had to wait a year, which I I thought, well, can I, what if I do really good in sobriety? Can I cut the time out a little bit? You know, can you get credit for something? And, um, but it was interesting because all I did was tell a lot, you know, a drunk log. And then at the end, you say, and now I'm sober. So um, here's my story. I, I, um, I think I, I loved alcohol. Um, my parents owned a tavern. As a little kid, one of the things I loved to do was go around and people would leave little beer at the bottom of their glass back then, and I would drink it. And, you know, my cousin would drink it, and that was sort of what we'd do. I, I think I actually probably passed out at a young age, but didn't didn't realize it. When I was about 15, I remember being out back. My, my I got used to drinking warm beer because we used to steal it. And um, my cousin and I and, and another person, um, had a, like a six pack or so, and we each drank a couple of beers and I loved it. You know, it was, I just felt great. I remember putting my arms around those two guys looking out over this lake and thinking, this is great. I'll, I'll never be alone. This is like the best feeling I've ever had. And, and then from then on, it was sort of that whole, whole capture of, you know, how do you get alcohol and alcohol just allowed me to be invincible. Um, even though you'd get, I'd get sick, it didn't pr- preclude me from drinking. You know, I, years ago, I got sick on potato chips, and I still don't like them. Yet for alcohol, that just didn't connect to the, you know, so on. So I did that and, you know, sort of went through high school with the typical of, you know, how to get it, how to drink it, how to hide it, and did that. Um, always, always, I was always going to start over and do it differently. So when I got to college, I was going to do it differently. I wasn't going to make the same mistakes I made in high school. And I always felt I was in the wrong group at the wrong time. You know, just did, I always felt that I was just in the wrong place. And I'd work real hard to get in this place. And then I'd get in this place. And I call myself a chronic malcontent. You know, I get to it and immediately think, no, I need to be somewhere else. So with that, went to college, was going to do it differently. Of course, I didn't. First day on the way to schedule classes, I ran into some guys who had already scheduled their classes. They were going to a bar, so I went with them, and which meant my freshman year in college, every class I had was either a 7 a.m. class or a 6 p.m. class, because at the time I registered, those were the only things that were left. 
um, immediately, um, you know, looking for love, um, got a lady pregnant, got married at 18, proceeded to, um, you know, binge drink when I had a chance. And when I binge drank, I, I had binge morals, binge values, you know, very inconsistent and so on. And then what had two kids right away by the time I was 20 and then um, still finished college. And then when um, every chance I got, I would run out and think I need to recapture something. And then got divorced and just assumed my issues were her. And now that I'm divorced, I don't have that. But I got a lot of recapturing to do because I gave up my fun years of 18 to 26 to be married. So went out and tried to recapture it. When I was married, I wanted to be single. When I'm single, I want to be married. Always, you know, if only something I didn't have. So I um, got married again, immediately said, well, this isn't working, um, you know, after nine months. And um, she did really pulled a fast one. She went to her employee assistance program coordinator and described me and he misdiagnosed me. He thought I had an alcohol problem. So he suggested that I um, go see a psychologist. And I did that just to prove her wrong. I went to see a psychologist, Dr. Bob Gordon. And um, he gave me what they call a Minnesota multi-personality inventory assessment. And um, I took it. And when I met with him, he sort of gave me my diagnosis and said, I always push things right to the limit. Though I thought he was just giving me compliment after compliment. You know, you know, I didn't think that was bad. I thought that shows really, you know, push everything and everyone right to the limit. And I thought that's good. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. And then he said, and there's a 90% chance you're an alcoholic. And I immediately was relieved tremendously because I just assumed I was in the 10%. I didn't understand that he was trying to give me overwhelming percentages here. He said, I'd like someone to, from Alcoholics Anonymous to call you. Is that okay? I didn't want to act scared. So I said, sure. This guy called me. I was very suspicious because I he seemed to know a lot about me. I thought that my therapist or the psychologist had broken confidentiality. He said, would you like to go to a meeting? I said, well, I can't go locally because I'm a big shot. I'm a bartender and, um, you know, I, and I teach. So we got to go out of town. So we went out of town and I sat there at this meeting and thought, what a bunch of losers. I mean, these guys are, you know, everybody had a DUI. All I did was think how superior I am to the rest of these people in, in this room. Um, the whole, everyone talked, I just realized why I'm not like them. And um, they went to give me a big book and I got real lucky because they were out of them. So they gave me a 12 and 12. I took the 12 and 12. I opened up the first page or second page. Whenever it got to God, I just closed the book and thought this is a bunch of, you know, cult here. And I, I but I didn't throw the book away. I hid the book because I don't know, in case there is, you know, in case there is. And, um, so I stayed sober about four or five weeks, and I thought that was pretty good. And then I decided to go to a July 4th event and decided to go to the beer tent, and drink Pepsi. And a girl came up to me that was rather attractive and said, how you doing? And seeing I have no skills. I have no skills sober. I was developmentally disabled. I said what I always say when a girl comes up to you, would you like a beer? And that proceeded to be just one horrendous, horrendous night. Um, humiliation, embarrassment, but that didn't stop me. I kept going, went through the second divorce. Um, again, now I'm out. The last week of my drinking was December of 1982. I'm out to capture, capture it. 
I went to bars and drank 777s because I remember drinking 777s. I had, you know, Tangerea gin on the rocks because I remember one time that worked for me. And for one week, I tried to do everything, call people that I used to hang out with, um, and it just didn't work. And then Christmas Eve to 1982, I picked up my kids from my first marriage. It was my night to have them. I've been drinking during the afternoon. I called my second wife to manipulate her into coming over and hanging with me. She didn't want to do it. So I was so self-centered on my own self-pity. I told my kids I couldn't be with them, took them back to their moms, dropped them off, came home and drank. And I probably listened to Led Zeppelin albums. Um, got up the next morning tremendously hung over I had a moment of clarity and I think Carl Jung would talk about this in the big book is sometimes your pain gets so big something just happens inside of you and all of a sudden I looked at myself and instead of thinking I'm this cool guy that was just always in the wrong spot at the wrong time with the wrong people I said you're a real loser you know you're sitting here on Christmas you have no family you've been divorced twice you're you lie you owe a lot of money um, you're a loser. And um, I, I was, if you look up the how the in December 25th of 1982, Wisconsin broke all sorts of warm weather, warm weather areas. I walked along wanting to get hit by a car because I thought if I could end up in the hospital, I could just bring people back to me and say, let's start over, you know, because I didn't want to go through any work. I just wanted everybody to come back and easy. So, um, question do you commit yourself commit suicide or don't you commit suicide i was going through that whole deal i just kept walking and walking um then i um picked up the the 12 and 12 and and i started reading it and they had changed it quite a bit since i had read it the first time and all of a sudden you know my narcissistic tendency brought in i actually thought they wrote the book about me you know this is pretty cool this book like is me um and and then i went to a minister and he I told him I wanted my second wife back and he said, um, on a one through 10, how healthy are you? And I said, a two. He said, where do you think she is? I said, a six. And he says, um, a two, a six not gonna be related to a two. So um, he said, you gotta get healthy. That changed my life. So I went to, started going to meetings and amazingly, the, the people had gotten so much healthier since I had been there the last time. They gotten so much better, found a sponsor, did, have done the steps, have stayed involved the whole time. In 39 years, I've never met more than two weeks without a meeting, and rarely do I ever go that long. Um, and and went through what went through sobriety. Uh, met a woman, got married now over 30 something years, had two more kids in sobriety. But like anybody else, I've had my ups and downs in sobriety. Uh, you know, I remember sitting in a meeting, I had about 16 years sobriety and I was miserable. And this guy was talking and he was talking about, he's got 13 years and what he's feeling like, what he's thinking like. And I'm thinking, that's me, that's me. And I'm so excited. And then he goes, because I've been on a dry drunk. I said, oh, crud, that's me, that's me. Um, and, and then like many people, just because you're sober doesn't mean everything goes well. I had a child that has a drug problem and that really threw me into the, the real depths of depression, self-pity, because God, I'm in sober. I mean, this isn't supposed to happen to me. I'm doing all the right stuff. And that forced me to really get even more engaged in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went back to what it was like in the very beginning. Um, 
that got me into step six and seven. And for me, the, the change in my life was step six and seven, because I, I, I thought um, I still had character defects. I don't think I was dealing with it. Just went online one day on an airplane for takeoff and hit step six and seven. And this thing said, drop the rock. So I started reading this book called Drop the Rock. And um, I think that's the quality sobriety steps for me. I can stay dry doing the steps, sort of. But I think six and seven is what helps me with the quality of my sobriety. Because if I deal with the quality character defects, then I have a lot less amends to make. Even when I do, then I do step 10 and I promptly admit it. So for me, we get into this pause as we wrap up. I think... I can always tell where I'm at if I'm spiritually fit. Like if I'm spiritually fit, I pause. Like right before I got on this line, I had a quick hit send on an email. I was spending the whole time, pause, pause, pause. So I still struggle with it. It reminds me of years ago, I was talking to my sponsor and I said, I wish I had more patience and tolerance. And um, we go to an AA meeting that night and honest to gosh, the chairman goes, the topics on patience and tolerance. And we look at each other like, this is unbelievable. So a guy gives his name and says, I have a lot of patience and tolerance. And I said, I'm going to listen to this guy. And he said, because I've never used any of it yet. And I think even with the pause, the reason I think I look at the pause so much, because I struggle with the pause. And I, I've never regretted pausing. But I tell you, I've regretted not pausing. I almost feel like I should hang up and quick write a pull that email back that I wrote right before I get here. So pause is really, to me, my emotional maturity in Alcoholics Anonymous. So we're the fortunate ones. I tell people that all the time when I speak. My sister died of pancreatic cancer. She would have done anything to have a treatable disease. One of my best friends in the program died June 30th of 2019 of Colin Castor, later cancer, John M., who was in the program, and he would have done anything. You know, he wasn't a recovering alcoholic, and I'll close with this. Um, when he died, his wife, Louise, looked at me, and he had 12-year sobriety. I talked to him five times a week and said, is it wrong to think alcoholism made my husband a better man? I said, it's recovery from alcoholism that made your husband a better man. So we're the lucky ones. Not everybody gets a treatable disease and illness like we have. So thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you. Thank you, Quint. Um, that was absolutely wonderful. And I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, we're never cured, but we're able to treat this. And, you know, um, you know, I, I have, you know, tragedy in, in my life as well. And and I wish that my mother had that that curable disease. But, you know, we have that that charge now to treat this every single day with all of the tools that we have at our disposal. And I know for me, my fellowship has been there to support me, um, especially over the last couple of weeks as, as I'm working through something and processing something. Um, you know, I, I will share about this maybe a little bit later, but um, my, my partner passed away uh, very unexpectedly. And to be able to incorporate that pause of what's my next step? What do I have to do now for my sobriety? You know, that's, that's something that I've really taken advantage of over the last few weeks 
Um, and, and really taking that pause to enjoy the good times and, and really be present in the moment. Um, but back to back the, to the idea of community, you're very actively involved in the community. Um, you're very big on renovating and revitalizing communities. How has the recovery community helped you on your journey? Well, I just think, first of all, ego deflation. I think, you know, the beauty about Alcoholics Anonymous is ego deflation. And, and I don't mean this in a negative way whatsoever. I think we're, we're so fortunate to be members of Alcoholics Anonymous because I know this is, isn't perfect, but I will tell you, I believe there's less judgment in the world of Alcoholics Anonymous recovery than every other place that I've seen. I think the ego deflation, you sit there with people and you're just, it's like, you're not, you know, you're not a big deal. You're no, you just, you're like another person on the bus just going through life. So I think that, I, I think plus there's a sense of belonging. I don't know about you, but I can be with all sorts of people, but I still feel better with people in, in recovery. I remember years ago, I went to a big event and I messed up on time and I got there about 20 minutes early and God, I was a nervous wreck and people were coming in that people knew and I knew um, and it was nice, but then a guy came in in the program and we were like, you know, two magnets running toward each other. So, so I think it's that sense of belonging, that sense of trust, that sense of acceptance. Um, and who cares? They don't care if I revitalize the community or not. I mean, they might think it's nice, but that's not what's about it. You have this or have that. So that's the beauty of it. You're just there and you're, you're, you're raw, you're naked and you're being accepted and you're accepting other people. And that's, you know, in general, I've been real fortunate. Maybe it's just me. I've really not gotten involved in I, the meetings and the groups I tend to be attracted to are non-judgmental ones, non-political ones. They too much follow the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thanks, Quinn. Um, you know, I, one of the favorite things that I heard you say is the people got better and the uh, literature got better. And I could definitely relate to that. You know, I started going to meetings... I don't know, about six years ago, and I would leave and just say, oh, what is wrong with these people? What is wrong with this literature? And it wasn't until I would say about a year ago when I was ready that I was just, like you said, attracted to the literature, attracted to the people. And that's, you know, I, I think it's because I started to become ready. You know, I've hit my quote unquote rock bottom. Um, I also relate heavily to being a chronic malcontent. I mean, you know, I got into a decent college. I went to Lehigh. I wasn't happy there. Uh, I, you know, I got a good job. I wasn't happy. I was always chasing, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. When I had money, I wasn't happy. When I didn't have money, I wasn't happy. So I, as well, was always in the, uh, the wrong place. And it was always somebody else's fault. Uh, the days leading up to here, I, I did a lot of research on you. You know, Jason talks very highly of you. And I was expecting to read a lot about your businesses and, you know, the successes you've had. And what I found most was kind of the uh, community involvement and in how you help people. And I guess, uh, can you expand on, I guess, what's most important to you and what drives you to kind of pursue that angle and I guess why I saw more of that than your um, professional successes. Well, thanks. You know, it's 
to go back to something you said too, I talk about this a lot, you know, when the teacher is ready, the student appears, we hear that all the time. And I don't buy when people say they've never heard it or never read it, because you'll hear that. So you know, nobody's ever said that before. I've never read that. And I'll say, you might have, <laughs> you just might not remember it. Because I, I will tell you, I was at a meeting, guy brought up at something and I thought he was a genius. And I went up to him and said, Roy, this is incredible. Where, where'd you read this? And he said, you know, I read it in the big book. I said, you're kidding me. I, I've, I've never read it. I said, what page is it on? He gave me the page. I said, oh, okay. So I went home. I opened up the page. I had yellow marked it at one time, pink marked it at one time, underlined it and dated. I had actually read it four times. So I think sometimes we just got to accept the fact that we're going to miss something. So instead of right away saying we never heard it, never read it, I just like to think I, I might have heard it or read it, but I certainly couldn't get it at the time. I, I think, Christopher, it all comes back to the same thing. All, everything you mentioned is the DNA of, of, I think, what we all want in Alcoholics Anonymous. All I ever really wanted to be was useful and helpful. That's really what I wanted to be. I started out teaching children with special needs. You know, all I ever wanted to be was helpful and useful. But then the alcohol gets in the way. So now what I want to be, I, I'm not. And now I feel like a fraud. So I think if you look at all the things I do, they all have something in common and they're trying to improve the quality of life for people. So I don't rehab a building to rehab a building. I rehab a building to create a place where people can work, where people can enjoy. So I think when we look at those types of things, those are tactics. But the ultimate, the ultimate thing is to improve the quality of life for people. And I think that's what we do in recovery. We improve the quality of life for people. And that's what I think, you know, every time you can do combine, you know, most of my books, I always joke, I'm just 12-stepping most of the stuff I'm doing. And people say to me quite a bit now is, you know, Quint, and I always follow the traditions. I don't say how, but I do say I'm a recovering alcoholic. And, and it's interesting because people will say to me, whoa, why do you say that in, in talks? I said, well, because I can help people that way. You know, I mean, I, people reach out to me because of that. People have come to me because of that. And uh, if I didn't tell them that, they might not, might, might not come to me. So I think, Christopher, all the things I do all come back to this one DNA. And, and it's a little bit selfish because, you know, you've heard this too. We feel better when we help other people. Now, I didn't buy that at first when I, I remember my, my sponsor told me to go do something nice for someone and don't tell anybody. And I said, but I can tell you, can't I? You know, um, it's just so foreign. I, I have the um, George Costanza life of recovery. Just do the opposite of everything. I, I feel like, remember that Seinfeld where George did the opposite of everything he wanted to do and his life got really good? Well, that's my George Costanza recovery life. <laughs> hey, uh, Quint, before um, we move on to, to Ben, um, you know, I just want to touch on you telling people about being a recovering alcoholic. You know, is is there something that changed at, at a certain time or did someone reach out to you or, or what made you kind of come out as the recovering alcoholic to really oh. be a service to people? I think it was probably, and it wasn't early on, it wasn't like day one or year one. I think it was way past that. Actually, it was probably almost when I met John John M. 
who I talked about who passed away. I was in a controversy with the city council. Um, I was not happy and they weren't, you know, it was, it was a controversy. And I went to speak to them and I basically said, you have to understand, I'm recovering alcoholic. I'm gonna be totally honest with you. So see, if I'm not totally honest with you, it's not like I'm lying. It's like I'm close to dying because as a recovering alcoholic, I have to be totally honest. And all of a sudden this guy comes up to me afterwards and shares his medallion with me. And here he'd been going to meetings way out of town because he was so embarrassed that he was in the program and he became one of my best friends. Now, if I don't say that that day, I don't meet him. So that's how it came about. And then, you know, you wait for the whole world to fall apart and it doesn't. One of my favorite stories is in Janesville, a guy named Howard, and he's deceased now. And he, he was recovering alcoholic. And he's one of these guys, if you know, when he came in the rooms, no one thought he would make it. You know, one of these, he'll never make it. And he did. And he became great. And he was reading at his church one day. And he got up and he went to read in his church. And he'd gotten so used to AA meetings. First time we were in this church, he got nervous. He just got up and said, I'm Howard, I'm an alcoholic. And he said he looked out at the parish waiting for all of them to make some reaction. And he said, most of the looks were, no kidding, Howard. We've known that for years, <laughs> nothing new here. So that's how it happened. Just sort of happened. And then um, it worked. And it worked. So that's what I do today. Quinn, the, uh, my notepad is full, and we've only been talking for 20 minutes. Um, you know, I, I love Jason's follow-up question there because – Reducing the stigma is something that, you know, I think we think is, feel is so important. And one of the reasons we do this podcast is to get the message out there and to not be, not wave it from every building top that, you know, I, you know I'm, in, I'm in AA or I'm in recovery, but that being in recovery doesn't have, is, is, in, a, is in a scarlet letter. It's, it's, you know, something my sponsors told me, uh, yeah, I recently got this new job and I shared with the, uh, the, my, my boss in the very first meeting that I was in recovery. Uh, cause again, I, you know, just like you, I, I, I can't, if I'm not honest, I feel like I'm cheating because I wasn't honest for a long time. You know, that, that sense of, you know, being alone on Christmas and, and feeling like a loser for two years, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror and because it was just, disgust and and so now not being honest is it's counterintuitive um but you know so I, I i you know i really appreciate you know your your effort to be just be honest um one of the things that that i like to ask our, our guests is you know we're we're in the midst of times that we we haven't been nobody has really been in um and certainly not the rooms of recovery and with meetings, you know, last year transitioning to online and almost exclusively online and now coming back in some form uh, and now, you know, the pandemic ramping up again, you know, what has your recovery looked like with somebody with so much time? Because that's one of the things that I hear I, you know, in the rooms. A lot of people said, I don't know how you guys got sober on Zoom. And to, to be honest, I, I don't I don't know another way to but to get sober. I can't imagine not having being able to do my 715 daily meeting that's based out of Philadelphia from New Jersey without Zoom. So, you know, for somebody with so much time, you know, how, what was that transition like for you? And what is, what is it, you know, how is it affecting you, you now? Oh, it's great because I'm so dang lazy. You know, sloth is one of my great characters. 
that I haven't got rid of. So you know, imagine I don't have to get up and shower. I don't have to get in the car. I don't have to drive. Um, I can multitask and people might not know it at the time. I mean, I, I can misbehave on Zoom much more than I can misbehave in person. So Zoom meetings were made for this lazy alcoholic. Um, you know, let, anything else, it is what it is. And you have to live in the environment it is. And alcoholics are always trying to change things when the reality is changing us, not changing the environment. So, so we, we do what we need to do. So I, I think it's been very highly effective. In fact, I chair a 9.30 central time Zoom meeting. And even when they went back in person, I kept it on Zoom. I'm still keeping it on Zoom because we started attracting people from out of town. We, we started attracting people that couldn't make it. Um, we, we started attracting people that were still more sensitive, maybe with their immune system, things like that. So, but my message is this. I think we have to study trauma because there's a difference between stress and trauma. And I think with the pandemic lasting as long as it is, we're more into the trauma than the stress. So my, my recommendation, and I've gotten very much into this, is recognizing when you're in trauma, your treatment has to be a little bit different than if you're in stress. And once you understand that, once you get the diagnosis right, then you can get the treatment right. Once you get the treatment right, you can align the behavior. So true. So true. Um, so Quint, you know, our our podcast is really focused around the recovery community in general and specifically focused on those in early recovery. So if you could offer one piece of advice or two pieces of advice for those who are just starting their journey or in early recovery, what would that be? Number one, be kind to yourself. You know, and I know people you'll hear, oh, be tough on yourself. And if you're not tough on yourself, nobody will be. Most of us, at least me, I, they, they didn't even need to open the door to let me into the room. I could have slid underneath it. That's where I was at emotionally. And I think the people that had the most impact on my early recovery, the people that made me feel loved. The, I mean, I remember going to a meeting on Saturday. It was full. There were no chairs. I didn't want to stand. I was ready to walk away. And this farmer from Footville, Wisconsin, looked at me with these giant hands and said there was an empty chair next to him and he made me feel loved. Because that's really what we're, we're, I was looking for, to be able to love and be loved. And then the second thing is that, you know, this sounds real crazy, but a drink's not going to help. That, that's what I had to finally, I mean, it, you know, the one thing a guy told me one time, though, the one thing that everyone that relapsed had in common was they drank. That's the only thing they all had in common. So, so what, what, the thing that hit me December 25th of 1982, and it was scary that a drink wasn't going to help. So if a drink's not going to help, then I better find some other things that help. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous isn't the sole answer but it allows me to get healthy enough to search out other answers. Cause I'm one of these guys that have gone through therapy on and off for 39 years too. And I have no shame in that. I think Alcoholics Anonymous allows us to take advantage of other resources that can help us be healthy. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Quint, thank you so much for your time tonight. We truly, truly appreciate it. I think that you have a great message and thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Quint. It was, it was a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I thought that was absolutely fantastic. You know, Quint's message is just spot on. You know, he was talking about, like you kind of mentioned, Chris, um, always needing to be somewhere else, that that chronic malcontent. And I identify that with, with that so much. And another thing that he was talking about is trying everything he could to regulate his drinking. I remember I was in the bar one time and my friend was like, you know, to regulate your drinking, just put four quarters in your left pocket. And each time you take a drink, put another quarter in your, or transfer a quarter into your right pocket. Well, that worked for the first four, but then I kept transferring back and forth from my right pocket to my left pocket, my left pocket to my right pocket. It did not work. It did not work at all. You know those uh, those stories where those TV shows where you're like, I know the ending of this one. Well, I knew the ending where you were going with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I've I've heard that story. And <laughs> it's a very it's a very common theme in uh, you know these these uh, programs. Yeah. Uh, you know, he reminded me so much of um, Pat. Yep. He, yep. You know, it just. His stories about the traditions and your character defects. And I think that's just because of the extended time he has, right? And, you know, when you get to that time, you become so knowledgeable. If you have 40 years in any industry, you're going to be very knowledgeable. Well, he's got almost 40 years of being sober. And it's just, I, I love when we get guests like this or, or I just get to talk to people like that because you learn so much. Right. The thing that, and I thought the same thing about Pat, and the thing that I, they don't have time for the bullshit. You know, there's, you know, there's no time for it because it doesn't matter. You know, and, and that's why they, they, it's, it's a, one thing that I, I, I would get nervous about is, referring to this podcast, is, is the message sounding the same? Because all the notes that I write down are the same. Drop the rock. God, God is a cult. I had a lack of balance. I mean, one of the just always saying when when Quinn said that you know I'm always gonna I, I'll do it different next time. I'll do it different next time. And then when somebody literally hands him a way to do it different, he's like, Yeah, I'm good. You know, and it doesn't matter. I think the guest, the time, the story is pretty much the same. But for me. Like I said to Quint, it is just a matter of, you know, reaffirmation that all of these things work. Like, I don't need to question them, you know, even if I, it's not working at that very moment. I know if I just keep coming back, if I just stick around long enough, if, I, if I'm in a barbershop long enough, I'm going to get a haircut. When, you know, as long as we're sticking with the, you know, the canned phrases of, of recovery. Yeah, you know, I want to I wanna also take it back to tonight's topic and what he was talking about, the pause. You know, that's been something that I have really purposefully put into my daily living. You know, I always used to be one who would react and really just not think about what I was doing or saying. And it caused so much harm in my life, so much harm in my life, where I wasn't able to enjoy a present moment, or I would create a resentment in myself or someone else. I mean, he mentioned the email, and I can't tell you how many times I have 
in the last year paused on sending an email or a text message or making a phone call or making a comment. And it's helped me tremendously. Exponentially, I could not put a figure on it. Yeah, the pause, the pause definitely helps in all aspects of your life. I mean, I think I'm very, I would say I'm very good at it in the professional sense and very poor at it in the home life. Um, and that's something that I can definitely learn to do better is with my, my wife is to pause. And it's not about, you know, he was talking about ego deflation. And I think that's when my ego's at its highest, when I don't pause, because the pause not only allows you to think, but it allows you to hear everybody around you, opinion, perception, they get all of their stuff out and you have all the information and you have more time to say, you know what, let me think of an intelligent thing or make an intelligent uh, reaction to something. Right. I mean, it's just kind of amazing the parallels that, not even the parallels, it's because this, the living a life of recovery is about living it throughout the, your entire life. And, you know, because it, it's funny that you say you can take the pause professionally, but not personally. I feel like I'm the exact opposite. I feel like for the most part, I can pause in my personal life, but professionally, you know, I'm going through this new job and it, it, you were talking about before we got on, there's this differentiation between a doer's mindset and a delegator's mindset. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard, I've heard my boss say something and I went and did it. And then I brought him back the product and he goes, okay, well, what did you learn? And it was, and I, I hadn't learned anything. I just executed a plan that I thought was what, what he wanted. And, and that's when he, he tells me to have patience and understand that I'm still learning a lesson. It's not about the end product. It's not about producing the, the Gantt charts, as you know, people in project management talk about. But it's about learning the lesson that there's a whole world that I don't know yet. And I've been doing this job for like three weeks. And it's like, just pause. And, and the, the, the last thing I'll say is that pause in every aspect. Pause when it's bad and pause when it's good. Because that's really where I can get in the most danger. If I'm reacting out of, ne out of negative emotion, then I know in the, uh, when I'm in the midst of it that I'm traveling down the wrong path. And I'm not, and it's, it's easy to check your motive, or it's easy for me to check my motive when I'm reacting out of negative emotion. It's when I'm reacting out of positive emotion and I'm just, I'm riding that high, I am whatever it is. I need to pause then too, because before you know it, I've gotten 10 miles down the road when I still need to be back here. I need to be present in, in all my affairs, you know? So it's, it's just a great topic tonight and great, great, uh, great guest. A hundred percent. And, you know, like I said, when we opened up, Quint has been incredibly influential in my life and in thousands of people's lives, both in the industries that he works in and throughout this recovery program. I don't know where I would be without him in my life. So it was a very special episode for me tonight. And as always, tonight's episode is dedicated to the still sick and suffering alcoholic and addict, especially the individual who's going to pick up for the first time tonight. 
Have a great night, guys. Have a great night. Ditto. We appreciate your liking and subscribing to our podcast. If you liked what you heard today and would like to support our podcast, feel free to Venmo a dollar to our virtual basket at Sober Solutions Podcast. We want to hear from you too. If you have a comment, question, topic, or would like to come on the show, find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Sober Solutions Podcast. Or you can shoot us an email to SoberSolutionsPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show.